there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Carter. This week on Unsolved Murders, we're doing something a little different. We're excited to bring you Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mystery of Marie Roget, in which he attempted to solve a real murder case, as you've never heard it before. As many of our longtime listeners know, we covered the murder of Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers in February 2017 and explored the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe in October 2016. Every day this week, we will release an episode of our adaptation, which is considered to be one of the first murder mysteries to feature details from a real crime. This is the first episode of a five-part series, so be sure to check your feed every day this week to hear the next part of the story. Before we begin our reading, let's go over some relevant context. This may well be the very first true crime story ever written. In the late 1830s, John Anderson hatched a plan to drive business to his tobacco emporium. He would hire a beautiful girl to serve as a clerk in his store. His plan worked. The shop's notable clientele of politicians, business people, and authors were enchanted by his new employee, who they nicknamed the Beautiful Cigar Girl. Then, in July 1841, her corpse was found floating in the Hudson River. While Poe changed the location of the crime to Paris and made the names slightly more relevant to the new locale, the details are pulled directly from the Mary Cecilia Rogers case. Poe said as much, noting that the story would be recognized by all readers in the late murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers. In fact, in a letter to his friend Joseph Edward Snodgrass, Poe said that by analyzing the real facts of the case through fictional detective C. Auguste Dupin, he was engaged in a very rigorous analysis of the real tragedy in New York. This story was personal for Poe. He moved to New York in January of 1837, the same year Rogers moved to the city with her widowed mother. 
It is widely reported that he was a regular customer at John Anderson's Tobacco Emporium, so it's not a stretch to assert that he knew Mary Cecilia Rogers. Other sources say that there was more to their relationship than courteous exchanges at the shop. Well, that makes this story so much more than a crime thriller. It may be Poe investigating the murder of his friend. The only way he knew how, through his pen. More conspiratorial sources claim that this is the work of an overconfident killer, teasing detectives by running a parallel investigation in short story form. We'll let you draw your own conclusions. Without further ado, we are excited to present part one of Unsolved Murders, The Mystery of Marie Roger. Marie, whose Christian and family name will at once arrest attention from their resemblance to those of the unfortunate cigar girl, was the only daughter of the widow Estelle Roger. The father had died during the child's infancy, and from the period of his death until within 18 months before the assassination which forms the subject of our narrative, the mother and daughter had dwelt together in the Rue Pave Saint-André, Madame there keeping a pension assisted by Marie. Affairs went on thus until the latter had attained her 22nd year, when her great beauty attracted the notice of a perfumer, who occupied one of the shops in the basement of the Palais Royal, and whose custom lay chiefly among the desperate adventurers infesting that neighborhood. Monsieur Leblanc was not unaware of the advantages to be derived from the attendance of the fair Marie in his perfumery, and his liberal proposals were accepted eagerly by the girl, although with somewhat more of hesitation by Madame. The anticipations of the shopkeeper were realized, and his room soon became notorious through the charms of the sprightly Grisette. She had been in his employ about a year, when her admirers were thrown into confusion by her sudden disappearance from the shop. Monsieur Leblanc was unable to account for her absence, and Madame Roger was distracted with anxiety and terror. The public papers immediately took up the theme, and the police were upon the point of making serious investigations when, one fine morning, after the lapse of a week, Marie, in good health, but with a somewhat saddened air, made her reappearance at her usual counter in the perfumery. All inquiry, except that of a private character, was, of course, immediately hushed. Monsieur Leblanc professed total ignorance as before. Marie, with Madame, replied to all questions that the last week had been spent at the house of a relation in the country. Thus the affair died away and was generally forgotten. For the girl, ostensibly to relieve herself from the impertinence of curiosity, soon bade a final adieu to the perfumer and sought the shelter of her mother's residence in the Rue Pave Saint-André. It was about five months after this return home that her friends were alarmed by her sudden disappearance for the second time. Three days elapsed, and nothing was heard of her. On the fourth, her corpse was found floating in the Seine, 
near the shore which is opposite the Cartier of the Rue Saint-André, and at the Hudson Point, not very far distant from the secluded neighborhood of the Barrière du Roule. The atrocity of this murder, for it was at once evident that murder had been committed, the youth and beauty of the victim, and above all her previous notoriety, conspired to produce intense excitement in the minds of the sensitive Parisians. I can call to mind no similar occurrence producing so general and so intense an effect. For several weeks, in the discussion of this one absorbing theme, even the monumentous political topics of the day were forgotten. The prefect made unusual exertions, and the powers of the whole Parisian police force were, of course, tasked to the utmost extent. Upon the first discovery of the corpse, it was not supposed that the murderer would be able to elude, for more than a very brief period, the inquisition which was immediately set on foot. It was not until the expiration of a week that it was deemed necessary to offer a reward, and even then this reward was limited to a thousand francs. In the meantime, the investigation proceeded with vigor, if not always with judgment, and numerous individuals were examined to no purpose, while, owing to the continual absence of all clue to the mystery, the popular excitement greatly increased. At the end of the tenth day, it was thought advisable to double the sum originally proposed, and at length, the second week having elapsed without leading to any discoveries, and the prejudice which always exists in Paris against the police, having given vent to itself in several serious emutes, the prefect took it upon himself to offer the sum of 20,000 francs for the conviction of the assassin, or, if more than one should prove to have been implicated, for the conviction of any one of the assassins. In the proclamation setting forth this reward, a full pardon was promised to any accomplice who should come forward in evidence against his fellow, and to the whole was appended, whatever it appeared, the private placard of a committee of citizens offering 10,000 francs in addition to the amount proposed by the prefecture. The entire award thus stood at no less than 30,000 francs, which will be regarded as an extraordinary sum when we consider the humble condition of the girl and the great frequency in large cities of such atrocities as the one described. No one doubted now that the mystery of this murder would be immediately brought to light. But although in one or two instances arrests were made which promised elucidation, yet nothing was elicited which could implicate the parties suspected, and they were discharged forthwith. Strange as it may appear, the third week from the discovery of the body had passed, and passed without any light being thrown upon the subject, before even a rumor of the events which had so agitated the public mind reached the ears of Dupin and myself. Engaged in researches which had absorbed our whole attention, it had been nearly a month since either of us had gone abroad, or received a visitor, or more than glanced at the leading political articles in one of the daily papers. Coming up, a source appears to share key information with our intrepid detective.
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Now, back to the story. The first intelligence of the murder was brought by an anonymous police prefect known only as G. He called upon us early in the afternoon of the 13th of July and remained with us until late in the night. He had been piqued by the failure of all his endeavors to ferret out the assassins. His reputation, so he said with a peculiar Parisian air, was at stake. Even his honor was concerned. The eyes of the public were upon him, and there was really no sacrifice which he would not be willing to make for the development of the mystery. He concluded a somewhat droll speech with a compliment upon what he was pleased to term the tact of Dupin, and made him a direct and certainly a liberal proposition the precise nature of which I do not feel myself at liberty to disclose, but which has no bearing upon the proper subject of my narrative. The compliment my friend rebutted as best he could, but the proposition he accepted at once, although its advantages were altogether provisional. This point being settled, the prefect broke forth at once into explanations of his own views, interspersing them with long comments upon the evidence of which latter we were not yet in possession. He discoursed much, and beyond doubt learnedly, while I hazarded an occasional suggestion as the night wore drowsily away. Dupin, sitting steadily in his accustomed armchair, was the embodiment of respectful attention. He wore spectacles during the whole interview, and an occasional glance beneath their green glasses sufficed to convince me that he slept not the less soundly, because silently, throughout the seven or eight leaden-footed hours which immediately preceded the departure of the prefect. In the morning, I procured at the prefecture a full report of all the evidence elicited, and at the various newspaper offices, a copy of every paper in which from first to last had been published any decisive information in regard to this sad affair. Freed from all that was positively disproved, this mass of information stood thus. Marie Roger left the residence of her mother in the Rue Pave Saint-André about nine o'clock in the morning of Sunday, June the 22nd. In going out, she gave notice to a Monsieur Jacques Sanustache, and to him only, of her intention to spend the day with an aunt who resided in the Rue des Drômes. The Rue des Drômes is a short and narrow but populous thoroughfare, not far from the banks of the river, and at a distance of some two miles, in the most direct course possible, from the pension of Madame Roger. Sanustache was the accepted suitor of Marie, and lodged as well as took his meals at the pension, he was to have gone for his betrothed at dusk and to have escorted her home. In the afternoon, however, it came on to rain heavily, and supposing that she would remain all night at her aunt's, 
As she had done under similar circumstances before, he did not think it necessary to keep his promise. As night drew on, Madame Roger, who was an infirm old lady, 70 years of age, was heard to express a fear that she should never see Marie again. But this observation attracted little attention at the time. On Monday, it was ascertained that the girl had not been to the Rue des Drômes, and when the day elapsed without tidings of her, a tardy search was instituted at several points in the city and its environs. It was not, however, until the fourth day from the period of her disappearance that anything satisfactory was ascertained respecting her. On this day, Wednesday, the 25th of June, a Monsieur Bouvet, who, with a friend, had been making inquiries for Marie near the Barrière du Roule, on the shore of the Seine, which is opposite the Rue Pave Saint-André, was informed that a corpse had just been towed ashore by some fishermen who had found it floating in the river. Upon seeing the body, Bouvet, after some hesitation, identified it as that of the perfumery girl. His friend recognized it more promptly. The face was suffused with dark blood, some of which issued from the mouth. No foam was seen, as in the case of the merely drowned. There was no discoloration in the cellular tissue. About the throat were bruises and impressions of fingers. The arms were bent over on the chest and were rigid. The right hand was clenched, the left partially open. On the left wrist were two circular exoriations, apparently the effect of ropes, or of a rope in more than one volution. A part of the right wrist also was much chafed, as well as the back throughout its extent, but more especially at the shoulder blades. In bringing the body to the shore, the fishermen had attached it to a rope but none of the excoriations had been affected by this. The flesh of the neck was much swollen. There were no cuts apparent or bruises which appeared the effect of blows. A piece of lace was found tied so tightly around the neck as to be hidden from sight. It was completely buried in the flesh and was fastened by a knot which lay just under the left ear. This alone would have sufficed to produce death. The medical testimony spoke confidently of the virtuous character of the deceased. She had been subjected, it said, to brutal violence. The corpse was in such condition when found that there could have been no difficulty in its recognition by friends. The dress was much torn and otherwise disordered. In the outer garment, a slip about a foot wide had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, but not torn off. It was wound three times around the waist and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. The dress immediately beneath the frock was a fine muslin, and from this, a slip 18 inches wide had been torn entirely out, torn very evenly and with great care. It was found around her neck, fitting loosely and secured with a hard knot. Over this muslin slip and the slip of lace, the strings of a bonnet were attached, the bonnet being appended. 
the knot by which the strings of the bonnet were fastened was not a lady's, but a slip or a sailor's knot. After the recognition of the corpse, it was not, as usual, taken to the morgue, this formality being superfluous, but hastily interred not far from the spot at which it was brought ashore. Through the exertions of Bouvet, the matter was industriously hushed up, as far as possible, and several days had elapsed before any public emotion resulted. A weekly paper, however, at length took up the theme, the corpse was disinterred, and a re-examination instituted. But nothing was elicited beyond what has been already noted. The clothes, however, were now submitted to the mother and friends of the deceased, and fully identified as those worn by the girl upon leaving home. Coming up, Parisian news sources run wild with reports detailing the murder. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Now, back to the story. Meantime, the excitement increased hourly. Several individuals were arrested and discharged. Son Ustache fell especially under suspicion, and he failed, at first, to give an intelligible account of his whereabouts during the Sunday on which Marie left home. Subsequently, however, he submitted to Monsieur G. affidavits, accounting satisfactorily for every hour of the day in question. As time passed and no discovery ensued, a thousand contradictory rumors were circulated and journalists busied themselves in suggestions. Among these, the one which attracted the most notice was the idea that Marie Roger still lived, that the corpse found in the Seine was that of some other unfortunate. It will be proper that I submit to the reader some passages which embody the suggestion alluded to. These passages are literal translations from L'Etoile, a paper conducted in general with much ability. Mademoiselle Roger left her mother's house on Sunday morning, June the 22nd, with the ostensible purpose of going to see her aunt or some other connection in the Rue des Drômes. From that hour, nobody is proved to have seen her. There is no trace or tidings of her at all. There has no person whatever come forward so far who saw her at all in that day after she left her mother's door. Now, though we have no evidence that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the 22nd, we have proof that up to that hour, she was alive. On Wednesday noon at 12, a female body was discovered afloat on the shore of the Barrière du Roule. This was, even if we presume that Marie Roger was thrown into the river within three hours after she left her mother's house, only three days from the time she left her home, three days to an hour. But it is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, 
could have been consummated soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. Those who are guilty of such horrid crimes choose darkness rather than light. Thus, we see that if the body found in the river was that of Marie Roger, it could only have been in the water two and a half days, or three at the outside. All experience has shown that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even where a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days immersion, it sinks again if left alone. Now, we ask, what was there in this case to cause a departure from the ordinary course of nature? If the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night, some trace would be found in shore of the murderers. It is a doubtful point, also, whether the body would be so soon afloat, even were it thrown in after having been dead two days. And furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution would have so easily been taken. The editor here proceeds to argue that the body must have been in the water not three days merely, but at least five times three days, because it was so far decomposed that Bouvet had great difficulty in recognizing it. This latter point, however, was fully disproved. I continue the translation. What then are the facts on which Monsieur Bouvet says that he had no doubt the body was that of Marie Roger? He ripped up the gown sleeve and says he found marks which satisfied him of the identity. The public generally supposed those marks to have consisted of some description of scars. He rubbed the arm and found hair upon it. Something as indefinite, we think, as can readily be imagined, as little conclusive as finding an arm in the sleeve. Monsieur Bouvet did not return that night, but sent word to Madame Roger at seven o'clock on Wednesday evening that an investigation was still in progress respecting her daughter. If we allow that Madame Roger, from her age and grief, could not go over, which is allowing a great deal, there certainly must have been someone who would have thought it worthwhile to go over and attend the investigation, if they thought the body was that of Marie. Nobody went over. There was nothing said or heard about the matter in the Rue Pave Saint-André that reached even the occupants of the same building. Monsieur Saint-Eustache, the lover and intended husband of Marie, who boarded in her mother's house, deposes that he did not hear of the discovery of the body of his intended until the next morning, when Monsieur Bouvet came into his chamber and told him of it. For an item of news like this, it strikes us it was very coolly received. In this way, the journal endeavored to create the impression of an apathy on the part of the relatives of Marie, inconsistent with the supposition that these relatives believe the corpse to be hers. Its insinuations amount to this, that Marie, with the connivance of her friends, had absented herself from the city for reasons involving a charge against her chastity, and that these friends, upon the discovery of a corpse in the Seine, somewhat resembling that of the girl, 
had availed themselves of the opportunity to impress the public with the belief of her death. But L'Etoile was again overhasty. It was distinctly proved that no apathy, such as was imagined, existed, that the old lady was exceedingly feeble and so agitated as to be unable to attend to any duty, that Saint-Eustache, so far from receiving the news coolly, was distracted with grief and bore himself so frantically that Monsieur Bouvet prevailed upon a friend and relative to take charge of him and prevent his attending the examination at the disinternment. Moreover, although it was stated by L'Etoile that the corpse was reinterned at the public expense, that an advantageous offer of private sepulture was absolutely declined by the family, and that no member of the family attended the ceremonial. Although, I say, all this was asserted by L'Etoile in furtherance of the impression it designed to convey. Yet all this was satisfactorily disproved. In a subsequent number of the paper, an attempt was made to throw suspicion upon Bouvet himself. The editor says, Now then, a change comes over the matter. We are told that, on one occasion, while a Madame B. was at Madame Roger's house, Monsieur Bouvet, who was going out, told her that a gendarme was expected there and that she, Madame B., must not say anything to the gendarme until he returned, but let the matter be for him. In the present posture of affairs, Monsieur Bouvet appears to have the whole matter locked up in his head. A single step cannot be taken without Monsieur Bouvet, for, go which way you will, you run against him. For some reason he determined that nobody shall have anything to do with the proceedings but himself, and he has elbowed the male relatives out of the way, according to their representations, in a very singular manner. He seems to have been very much averse to permitting the relatives to see the body. By the following fact, some color was given to the suspicion thus thrown upon Bouvet. A visitor at his office, a few days prior to the girl's disappearance and during the absence of its occupant, had observed a rose in the keyhole of the door and the name Marie inscribed upon a slate which hung near at hand. The general impression, so far as we were enabled to glean it from the newspapers, seemed to be that Marie had been the victim of a gang of desperadoes, that by these she had been borne across the river, maltreated and murdered. The Commercial, however, a print of extensive influence, was earnest in combating this popular idea. I quote a passage or two from its columns. We are persuaded that pursuit has hitherto been on a false scent, so far as it has been directed to the Barrière du Roule. It is impossible that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without some one having seen her and any one who saw her would have remembered it, for she interested all who knew her. It was when the streets were full of people when she went out. It is impossible that she could have gone to the Barrière du Roule or to the Rue des Dromes without being recognized by a dozen persons. Yet no one has come forward who saw her outside of her mother's door, and there is no evidence, except the testimony concerning her expressed intentions, that she did go out at all. Her gown was torn, bound round her, and tied. 
and by that the body was carried as a bundle. If the murder had been committed at the Barrière de Roule, there would have been no necessity for any such arrangement. The fact that the body was found floating near the Barrière is no proof as to where it was thrown into the water. A piece of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats, two feet long and one foot wide, was torn out and tied under her chin around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket handkerchief. Thank you for listening to part one of The Mystery of Marie Roget. In the next episode, our detective Dupin reviews new evidence and old, aiming his attention at the media circus surrounding the case. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>